Welcome to our class. Let me begin with a word of prayer. Dear Father in Heaven, as we consider um, the world in which we live and what your good news might be to it, I pray for the time that you have provided for us to come together. I pray for Dr. Nicholson as he teaches that you would um, speak to us through him, um, help your truth to be proclaimed, and most of all, help us to hold fast to the good news of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. If you ordered a book and have not picked it up yet, there's a couple here. I think maybe everybody did because I ordered a couple extra and there's a couple extra. Um, but that's where they are if you want one or need one. So um, if you feel like we need to shut the door at some point, if there's noise, I leave you in charge of that. Okay? Is that something? Thank you. Um, I'm sitting down for two reasons. One is, well, it's just more comfortable. And second, uh, I don't have a podium strong enough to hold my computer up, well, which is my wife's computer. So if I break it, I'm in big trouble. Um, uh, The title of this study that we're going to do Wednesday night is Scripture, the Self, and Society. But, of course, the primary uh, content for it is coming from your book, um, if you haven't yet gotten the book, uh, you're, you're not too late because the first assignment is like tonight. So read the first chapter by next week. Today we're going to introduce the topic and the book, and we're going to have a brief Bible study about the first one of those three S's, the, the self and human identity. Uh, but first... Um, thought I'd introduce some of the strangeness of this strange new world, um, if that wasn't strange enough. Uh, some of these people you may be familiar with. Um, oh, um, the topic is really the sexual revolution, and there's a focus on transgenderism, but, um, and this is what uh, Dr. Truman is going to be talking about, but we don't have to limit discussion to that, just so you know. So, uh, as you probably know, this fella, and uh, by the way, I, I don't mean to be insulting anybody, but you can't become a woman just because you think so. So, uh, Bruce Jenner is a man who now thinks he's a woman. I think somewhere down, this will tell you what I think, that, that deeply psychologically about uh, people who have gender dysphoria, because that's what it's called now. Uh Just like Paul said in Romans chapter 1, that uh, we know the truth, but we deny it. I think deep down they know they're really not telling themselves the truth. But anyway, he was the winner of the 1976 decathlon, which is, if you win that, you're considered the best athlete in the world. And at the time, as arguable that he was, so... Long story short, he came out as a trans woman in April 2015, and this is the famous Vanity Fair. Um, if they could do to me what they've done to him, I would probably look like Brad Pitt. Uh, so. 
Bruce Jenner. Yeah, or Bruce Jenner when he was. Uh, he's now 72 years old, by the way. Uh, so he doesn't look quite that good. Um, and I am going to consistently refer to people who consider themselves transgender by their biological sex. Just, just, just so you know, which I would do in public. Um, this, you may not know who this is. This is Ellen Page, who now calls herself Elliot Page. She's a Canadian actress. Well, they call her an actor now. And by the way, if you go to the Wikipedia pages on these individuals, they, on the other hand, will use their chosen pronouns. So she's a Canadian actress best known for her role, uh, the title role in the movie Juno. But she's been a lot of stuff. Um, I almost cry when I see this picture. So on the left, you see an attractive young woman. On the right, you see uh, a woman who's mutilated herself. If you look closely, I, I can't tell if the resolution is good enough. She's had what is uh, called in the, in the transgender world top surgery. She had a non-therapeutic mastectomy and uh, had her breast removed. And now she calls herself uh, Elliot. Uh, she came out as a trans man uh, 2020, I think. Um, she said that at the age of nine, I felt like a boy. I wanted to be a boy. I would ask my mom if I could be someday. Um, the next one, um, these two fellows are at a reception for the French ambassador in Washington. They are both government employees, fairly high up. Uh, the young man on the, uh, on the right in the attractive little blue thing and the, the pumps is uh, nuclear engineer Sam Britton. He is the deputy assistant secretary of spent fuel and waste disposition in the Office of Nuclear Energy. He's in charge of nuclear waste. He's not transgender. Um, uh, the man on the left is. Uh, he identifies as gender fluid, and he uses they, them pronouns. Um, the man on the left is uh, Richard, well, Rachel. He, he calls himself Rachel now. And these are their, I'm sure they're their legal names now. He's a pediatrician. Uh, he was, I don't know if he still is, professor of pediatrics and psychiatry at the Penn State College of Medicine and previously secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Health and is now the U.S. Assistant Secretary for Health uh, since uh, 2021. This also is uh, Sam Britton. Oh, I forgot to enlarge that. Sorry. Um, this is also Sam Britton. Uh, he's into kink. Um, he's, he, he says he's uh, non-binary, gender fluid, but he does uh, engage in homosexual acts and engages in a strange um, activity that's called putt play. I don't know if it has a more official term um, where he has sex with men who... Uh, act like dogs just and he's their master um, this next person was in the news um, or recently this is uh, Will Thomas now calls himself Leah 
So he competed on the University of Pennsylvania men's swim team from 2017 to 2020, apparently undistinguished because nobody ever heard of him. Um, and 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 there you go. But when he became a woman, um, or said he was a woman, uh, he did much better. Um, he became the first openly transgender athlete to win an NCAA Division One national championship in any sport after winning the women's women's five hundred yard freestyle event. So these are well known. Uh, transgender individuals. Um, and I will use the term, although like gay, I'm, I'm a little loath to, uh, to even say transgender seem to indicate you can change your gender because you feel like it. But it's, uh, it's established and it's uh, too, too, too convenient not to use it. Uh, and it's a handy, handy uh, way to refer to men and women who have somehow willed themselves to believe a delusion, so transgender. I um, want to show you a couple of quick video clips. This first one is from uh, Good Morning America 2018. I don't remember watching Good Morning America since uh, Joan London and, and uh, I think David Hartman were on it. It seems to have changed a bit. Uh, you're going to see uh, the introduction of a uh, th- this is almost an official term now. A drag kid by the name of Desmond Napoli, who was 11 at the time and is now 15. And he's not transgender. Uh, he, his mother says, anyway, he identifies as gay. But I, I think it does speak to the whole idea of this idea of gender fluidity and the belief that you can alter your sexual characteristics. Anyway, let's see if I can, let's see if it plays. If you haven't heard the name Desmond Napolis, get ready for this trailblazing 11-year-old drag kid who RuPaul is calling the future. His bravery is inspiring so many. We're going to talk to him in just a moment, but first... Can everybody hear it? Amazing story. No, I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> Are you Desmond? Yeah. I'm Olivia. Nice That's his mother and father, by the way. I love doing drag because it makes me feel amazing and self-expressive. It just feels amazing to know that people love what I do. My one big message would be three words. Be yourself always. Okay, here's a, it's a, here's a, where's Waldo moment? There are only two people in the audience that are not applauding. Find them. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, it's good that his mother wants him not to drink caffeine. The next video is an official uh, training video uh, produced by um, a Navy publicity producing division that produces videos for training. Hi, my name is Johnny and I use Ethan Productions. Hi, and I'm Tom G and I'm Ms. Gene Hurt. And we're here to talk about pronouns. What is it? Using the right pronouns is a really simple way to affirm someone's identity. It is a signal of acceptance and respect. This is not Saturday Night Live or the Babylon Bee. That's a good question. A really good way to do that is to use inclusive language. Instead of saying something like, hey guys, you can say, hey everyone, or hey team. Yeah, and now that you say that, another way that we can show that we're allies and that we accept everybody is to maybe include our pronouns in our emails or, like we just did, introduce ourselves using our pronouns. But what would I do if I uh, misgender someone? I think the first thing to recognize is that it's not the end of the world. You correct yourself and move on, or you accept the correction and move on. The most important thing I can tell you is do not put the burden of making you feel good about your mistake on the person that you just misgendered. Oh, thank you for telling me that. Yeah, and another tip uh, for you to remember there's a pronoun next time. It's in your mind. Kind of go through a progression of three good things about the person using the pronoun. So let's say the person chooses to use they, then you will in your mind go, they have a nice shirt. They have a nice they are really smart. So that kind of stays in your head. That is so helpful. Um, I want to know, what would I do if I want to know someone's gender identity or pronouns? The most important thing is do not pressure anybody into giving you their pronouns. Some people may be going through the process of discovery and they are not ready yet to tell you what their pronouns are, and that's okay. So I should just lead with my pronouns and they may follow or not, and if they don't, then I can just continue to use gender neutral language. Yes, exactly. Just to share something with you that happened uh, the other day at our Kukara was at, we were uh, talking about pronouns, and somebody was disagreeing with how different people um, see themselves as different pronouns, and the argument was, if you look like a female, then it's she, her, because that's what's normal, and if you make me call you something else, then you're infringing on my rights. And I, I was really taken aback by the comment, and I really wasn't sure how to respond. And the only thing I could really think quickly to say was, it's not about you at all, and it's mostly and ultimately about respect. It is about respect. That's an important point to make, and I think you did the right thing. I think it's important to keep it short and simple. What I would have said to help them understand better is to talk about mispronouncing names. For example, my name is Johnny, spelled J-O-N-Y. And it's normal for someone to pronounce my name like Joni. But if I were to tell you over and over again, my name is Johnny, and you insist on mispronouncing my name, I would feel disrespected by you. 
Some names are very difficult to pronounce, but do you know what is very easy to pronounce? She, he, they. Okay, um, I'm not going to mention, well, I'm going to mention this, that we could, we could discuss how these things are wrong on so many different levels, but we'd, we'd get bogged down. Oh, in the last video, I forgot to mention, those two individuals are engineers for, I don't think I'm getting the exact thing right, but it's the Naval, it's the Underwater Warfare Division. I think it's in, they're civilian contractors. Um, I think it's in Rhode Island. Uh, there's another one in Washington State. So that's a real Navy training video. I'm not sure it helps with military readiness, but... Um, so, quoting uh, Truman, uh, Dr. Carl R. Truman, he is now a professor of history at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. He's British. Um, I don't know if there's too much on his bio in the book. Um, yeah, if you look on the back. Um, and he's a really great writer, by the way, I will say that. So he says, welcome to this strange new world. And we've just seen parts of it. Is, is, is anybody, was there anything in there that you, you find unfamiliar or shocking that you, you didn't already know, maybe not those particular ones, but you're already familiar with to the extent that uh, the transgender ideology has become infused in the cultural mindset. Is anybody... Um, how about if I had shown you those things 10 years ago or, even, or you know, 15, 20? Uh, if you had said some of this stuff to me or anybody else when I was in high school, which was a long time ago, um, they would have said, you're nuts. Um, there were very few transgender individuals. Uh, there was one, Renee Richards, and one other whose name I forget. That but, wasn't even a word 10 years uh, ago. Uh, transgender wasn't a word. It was transsexual. Um, and, and, and now um, the official term is now that, that you are trying to correct with so-called gender affirmation surgery, that's what it's called now, uh, is gender dysphoria. You somehow feel like uh, you, you've been given the wrong body. Um, We'll talk more about those characteristics next week when we talk about the sexual revolution, but I want to introduce what's going on with Truman's book and, and, then, and then assign you the chapter. But, and it'll be easy. There'll be only like one quiz a week, and then we'll have an exam. Uh, True-false, multiple choice at the end. Just kidding. However, if I was teaching the book, that would probably be it for, for college or high school class. Oh, yeah, the, the kids who are still in school, they have to do the exams. Just kidding. So at the heart of this book, uh, Dr. Truman says, is a historical narrative that is concerned with the ideas of a number of intellectual figures. These are those primary figures, uh, and I'll introduce them real quick. And he will tell you at some point that what he is explaining is a history of ideas that is necessary but not sufficient to explain why we live in the culture that we live in today this way. In other words, these ideas are important, but they're the not the only things that create 
uh, culture on the ground, so to speak, particularly with respect to the sexual revolution. In other words, if someone hadn't invented cheap, convenient pill form birth control, things would probably be different. So technology plays a part. Popular culture plays a part. But he's going to be discussing some of the ideas that have really influenced the culture and not so much that they are now simply part of the cultural background. And we ourselves, sometimes unawares, have been influenced by them. Um, Anyway, Rene Descartes, if you don't know him, was a 17th century philosopher and mathematician. He came up with Cartesian geometry, among other things. But uh, he also was famous for the phrase cogito ergo sum. I think... Therefore, I am. And what he did, he didn't mean to do it, but what he did for later generations is reduce truth to subjectivity. I know what's true if I can feel it. Um, that's all I'll say. I'll let uh, Dr. Dr. Uh, Truman finish up with that. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, I studied. Has anybody here got a degree in education? You might have studied Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I studied him because he, uh, his ideas have influenced education. Uh, it's influenced culture in general, but education. Uh, second only to John Dewey. Um, John Dewey doesn't come up here, but um, he does in Truman's larger treatment of this. Uh, he was an 18th century uh, French philosopher and man about town, Uh, the Romanticists, and the ones, mm, he may mention a few German ones, but the main ones that uh, Dr. Truman discusses are the British Romanticists, um, Lord Byron, William Wordsworth, Mary Shelley, my my favorite writer. Um, Frankenstein is actually a subtle parody of Romanticism. Um, And then uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley, the the paradigm of Romanticism. Karl Marx, most of you are familiar with the name. He, he, the philosophy of Marxism uh, still has a lot of influence, of course, particularly in academia. Uh, another 19th century philosopher, at one point kind of contemporaneous with Darwin. Um, anyway, it, he was a German but an expatriate who died in London. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, very interesting uh, philosopher, um, sometimes called a nihilist, though he was not a nihilist in, in the strict sense of the term. He actually believed we could overcome nihilism, but he was a, an atheist philosopher. Marx was an atheist. Not all the Romanticists were atheists. Uh, Shelley, Percy Bysshe Shelley was. Rene Descartes was a good Catholic. Sigmund Freud, the founder of modern psychiatry, he was uh, of Jewish heritage, but he also was an atheist. Wilhelm Reich was a disciple of Freud, but uh, to Freud's mind, took Freud's view on, on sex and the self too far, which I disagree with. I think he extended them to their logical, if absurd, conclusions. <laughs> so Dr. Truman is going to discuss these individuals in the first uh, few chapters of the book. Well, the first chapter is, is an introduction to it. But this is a history of ideas book. Um, 
though in the second half of the book, he actually discusses what happened here in the United States primarily in the culture, popular and philosophical, to get to the point where we take seriously men who say they're women and women who say they are men. Um, so in Dr. Truman's words, uh, well, paraphrasing his words, um, this is the question that's going to be answered. How did we come to live in a culture in which the statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, or vice versa, is intended as, and frequently taken as, a serious statement of reality and not just an expression of mental delusion or emotional disturbance. And seriously, and this happened very rapidly. Um, I, uh, uh, gosh, when was it? It was either the last year I was teaching... Um, or the next to last, so it was 2013 or 2014. I taught at a Christian school uh, here in Louisville, and it was a class on worldviews, and I happened to mention that uh, there was a, a, a school district in Massachusetts that had, that had passed an ordinance or law that was going to allow, in the elementary school, uh, transgender kids of the opposite sex to use. They were going to allow boys who believe they were women to use the women's bathroom and vice versa. And we were talking about sexuality and the sexual revolution. And the next day, one of my students came back and said, well, my father didn't believe you. <laughs> I said, well, here's the link to the article. You can, he can read it yourself. So it's not exactly new, and it seemed to sneak up on us, but of course it's been there in the background for a while. Um, does anybody have any questions or comments so far? Because this is like going to be a class where you can comment uh, almost in any way you want. So, yes, Will. I suppose, I suppose I'm, I'll this as like a supplemental thing that there's a book out there by Abigail Schreier called Irreversible Damage, right. which talks about this being more, she argues, as like a, a contagion, especially amongst young women, young girls, who instead of anorexia or something like that, it is now, I'm transgender. It's also like mass fainting. I don't know, that, that was a phenomenon when I was teaching middle school. I think it happened in my school once. You know, one girl faints and the whole crowd of them faint. Um, no, I, I mean, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's basically that's what it was. <laughs> no, they didn't knock each other over. Okay, and what we're talking about now is called gender dysphoria. Uh, this is no longer considered a mental illness uh, that requires, you know, therapy. Uh, on the American Psychiatric Association uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, DSM. I think they're up to DSM-5. It's, it's no longer considered a mental disorder. It's, it's just... You know, it's an adjustment. It might be like, I don't know if it's even considered a neurosis. And the standard treatment now in the American, I don't know if it, I might get my acronym wrong, the American Pediatric Association, um, is that, that you then do gender affirmation treatment. They actually are prescribing puberty blockers for, for minors 
and doing so-called transgender or gender affirmation surgery. Now, there's, there's a hideous euphemism if I ever heard one. So they are uh, castrate. well, they're doing more, but they're castrating men and removing the breasts of women, trying to create an artificial penis to affirm the gender they feel that they are on the inside. So that's what's actually going on. So it's even more disturbing than anything I've shown today. Um, there we go. So um, I'm not really going to go into in depth to what uh, Dr. Truman has to say about this, but I want to introduce one term because we're going to have a brief Bible study about this to sort of wrap things up. Uh, he says there is something that helps us to unify the changes. This is all in chapter 1. Uh, we are witnessing and to make them, if not entirely explicable, at least less random than we might be tempted to think. This is the notion of the self. Now, there, there, this isn't Dr. Truman's definition. I'll give you his in a minute. But when you think of it psychologically, the self is the individual as, it's the, as the object of his or her own reflective awareness. You know? um, there's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, that's an aspect that I'm going to talk about in a few minutes of the image of God. We have self-reflective awareness. We know ourselves to be ourselves. If you look in a mirror, uh, you will recognize yourself. There is for certain no other animal that does that although they think orangutans might, um, and occasionally maybe other apes. But um, I remember when I first showed my dog a mirror, he barked, most dogs will, because he thinks it's another dog, and he never understood that that was him. They don't have self-reflective awareness. I'm not saying they don't have awareness. I'm not saying dogs don't have feelings, or, or I don't know. I was going to say or cats, but... Maybe cats don't. I'm just <laughs> kidding. Now you're just trying to be politically correct. Yes. <laughs> there have been some studies that show that dogs have a scent-based self-awareness. Uh, sense what? Scent-based self-awareness. Like um, they can't recognize themselves with their eyes, but they can with their nose. Well, I'll keep that. You, you need to do a monograph on that. Okay. <laughs> uh, true self-awareness. Well, angels and God also have uh, thought of theologically, the self is identified with one's non-material soul, which is, we'll talk about that in a minute too. Uh, that's the enduring essence of who one truly is. However, it doesn't mean we're souls trapped in bodies. This was one of the things that Descartes' philosophy led to, the idea that only what we perceive on the inside that is intangible, only that's our real self. So I'm really Wilt Chamberlain, so. No, I'm not black. I'm really tall. So really tall. He was seven foot, I think. Okay, so when uh, Dr. Truman uses the term self, he says, when I use the term self, I'm referring to the deeper notion of where the real me is to be found, how that shapes my view of life, and in what the fulfillment or happiness of that re real me consists. Now he is here blending, and he probably knows it, I'm not critiquing this, I'm just saying he is blending the idea of self and identity, which is not necessarily wrong, by the way, because here is a definition of identity. Oh, this is in the book, you know, nobody has to write that down. 
although this isn't in the book, but that's in that book, um, which I'll mention again in a minute. So identity is the sum of everything that pertains to us and shapes us. Identity is that sense of being and self-understanding that frames our actions, communicates to others who we are, and sets the agenda for our acts. We live out a sense of identity. Uh, and that's why Klein Snodgrass, who, uh, what is he? Anyway, it's an evangelical congregational. Anyway, I forget. Anyway, book from Erdman, so it's a really solid book. Um, so we're going to spend the next few minutes uh, looking at identity and the self in Scripture. Um, and you really need to start with when, when the Scripture is telling us who we are. It, oh, yeah, this is, well, here's uh, Snodgrass. Brian Rosner uh, wrote two books related to this. A lot of what I'm telling you is gleaned from their books. Known by God, a biblical theology of personal identity. Brian Rosner, how to find yourself while why looking inward is not the answer, and the one by Snodgrass. And if you want to write those down and you're not fast enough for my slide switching, I'd be happy to come back to that, but I want to move on. Um, so the first thing, uh, we need to know what we are. Now, this is... This is this is an important distinction, and Truman will point it out. He goes into it more deeper in his larger book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. But one thing that's been lost in this intellectual history is the sense that human beings have a definitive nature, that, in fact, we're, we're created and we have a nature just like any flower, plant, dog, cat, um, subatomic particle. They have specific things that they are and they aren't something else. Um, this is denied with respect to people. Uh, you're, you're, the whole, the term gender fluid, which is, I'm not sure if it's an oxymoron or just nonsensical, but it's one or the other. Um, that word in itself denies it, but it is simply denied that there's something we are intended to be and that we have a purposeful existence that we are supposed to live out. We can be whoever we want to be. I'm sure you've heard that before. Um, the first thing we are is creatures made in God's image and likeness, male and female. So let me go ahead and read. I'm not going to read all the scriptures I list here. Um, I'm also not going to be doing a Bible study every single time. I'll talk more about that perhaps when we're done. But this is Genesis 1, 26 and 28, which you're probably familiar with. Uh, God has created everything else, the sun, the moon, the stars, the oceans, the skies, the land, the animals, the fish. And now, verse 26 and 28, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. And in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the seas and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. him. Male and female, he created them. And just a word on the text, um, and I'll expand on it. Uh, the, the, the word man there 
is not the Hebrew word for male, which escapes my memory at this second. It's simply the Hebrew word for mankind in general. It's also not simply the name Adam, although they're very close. It's Adamah or Adam. Um, so it really is a reference to uh, humankind in general, and that's why it says male and female he created them, because we're equal even if we're not equivalent. And I'll talk more about sexual differentiation in a minute. So when I say we're creatures, I don't mean creepy crawly things, although they're creatures too, but so is a tree, so is a galaxy, so is every, so, so is some atomic particle are creatures in the sense that we are created and not by ourselves. By the way, that's one, I think it's Psalm 101 uh, translation of it. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. The other translation is, it is we who has made us and we are his. So I can't say, not being a Hebrew scholar, which one of those is the best. But we have not made ourselves. The universe and everything in it is a creation. Now that sounds like a commonplace to us. Well, we knew that. But this fact and the implications of it are widely denied, uh, particularly by secularists and certainly by atheist materialists. Not every secularist is an atheist, but they do believe that religion has no place in public life. Um, that we are created means that we are utterly dependent on our creator. And of course, that's one thing that fallen rebellious man doesn't want to hear. You're utterly dependent on a creator, not only for your existence, but for your sustenance and your identity. It also means that we have an essence, and by essence I mean a set given nature, a real essential nature, design, and purpose. And we can't alter this. Um, and it's true, there, there are flaws, there are wrenches in the machinery. Uh, I'll mention this briefly right now, it just popped into my head. There are certain individuals, it's very rare, very low percentage, who are called intersex, who have uh, male and female chromosomes sometimes. There are various conditions that qualify as intersex. You can actually have uh, male chromosomes and present as female. But this is rare, and this is not to be confused with transgenderism. Uh, it's a real biological condition because, among other things, the flaw has altered the cosmos, which I can't remember if I get into that or not. Uh, read Romans 8 if I don't. Um, we can ignore that. We can be in denial. Uh, we can try to fight against it. We can mar it. Um, it does make me sad. I haven't had to get any, you know, uh, confrontations with transgenders. Uh, so it just makes me sad to see someone like, like uh, Ellen Page, an attractive young woman who felt it necessary to have a non-therapeutic mastectomy. Um, but reality isn't going to alter to suit our feelings or wishes. It just, it just won't. It, it is what it is. And, and again... It's not going to go along with our desires and feelings. Um, there, are, there is a way that reality is. It is determinate, and it's because it's a creation. Um, and again, I know that all sounds like, well, yeah, I knew that, but the culture around us is rapidly forgetting it and fighting against it. So we are created in the image of God. This has an essential aspect and a functional aspect. 
and depending on your theological persuasion, you emphasize one or the other. So I emphasize the essentiality of it. So essentially, we are created in God's image means that we have certain specific attributes. These are sometimes called communicable attributes. Just so you know, the incommunicable attributes are omniscience, omnipresence, uh, omnipotency, eternity, infinity. These are things that God can't share with us. Uh, But he can share these things, and these are really categories of things. Like love is one thing, but that comes under the category of... of, um, these attributes, which I call relationality. So we possess certain specific attributes that, both, that make us both like God in some respects and differentiate us from the other animals. These attributes are self-reflective awareness, although maybe dogs have self-nasal awareness. I don't know. <laughs> I really don't. Um, I love animals, by the way. Don't take this as matter of fact. Truth be told, uh, there are dogs I like more than some people I know. These at, you know that too, so don't. Anyway, self-reflective awareness. We are aware of ourselves, being aware of ourselves, being aware of ourselves. It's almost looking, you know, I have, I have a, uh, a bedroom closet that has mirrors on both doors. You can open it, stand in the middle, and you get that infinity effect. Uh, we can think of ourselves like that. Here I am thinking about myself, thinking about myself, thinking about myself. Self-reflective awareness. Um, God has that awareness. Rationality. Uh, We are able to think logically and actually uh, construct and manipulate reality in our minds. There's more to rationality than that, but I'll leave it at that. Relationality. We have both a longing and ability to have relationship and love. Everything from, you know, mother to child, father to son, friend to friend, husband to wife, um, and disciple to the Lord. And then the final category is creativity. Now, creativity has to be qualified, too, is we can't create ex nihilo. Now, God creates from nothing. God is the only person, capital P, who can create from nothing but his will and desire. And so inserting theologically this idea of transgenderism, it really is the desire to be your own God. I want to self-create myself out of nothing but my own feeling and desire with some help from technology and medical science. Functionally, we are God's representatives and stewards on earth. Um, And so that's what we are in the image of God. And male and female... um, I'm not going to state the obvious. There are sexual... We, we, uh, we are a species that has sexual dimorphism. There are differences uh, both in our reproductive anatomy and in our, in our uh, bodily attributes. Um, that reflects God's will in nature with... Let's see how can I can make this. Let me read what I actually wrote. Because when I read it, it said, yeah, if that were a master's level textbook, that would make sense. But reflects God's will and nature with respect to relationality and the ontology of unity and multiplicity. Okay, it reflects God's desire to have unity and diversity. Um, this is opposed to a great deal of, of uh, Greek as well as modern philosophy. 
The sexes are complementary, and please do not freight that with the political denominational baggage that sometimes goes along with that. We are complementary uh, sexually, um, emotionally, physically. Um, women and men have different emotions. Men's emotions are not better than women's, and women's are not better than men's. We are complementary, and we are meant to complete each other. Um, there are real physical and there are real psychological difference. This, again, is also denied by contemporary society. A lot of them. Um, differences, uh, just let me say, I, th I think differences can be distorted and overemphasized. Just because, for example, on average, men are stronger, faster, etc. than men, that doesn't mean that all women are weaker than all men. If, if I were uh, in, a, in a fire and had to be carried out by a fireman, I would not want someone my size and my age to come get me. And if there were a big, strong woman, uh, you know, I have no qualms about that. You know, women can do things. So we're talking about on average. Uh, it, it doesn't, but it doesn't deny the fact that 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 we are still complementary. Uh, this. I can't remember if I get into it later or not, but this really plays out in athletics. Uh, I actually, I, I have the website. Uh, someone literally did a study about uh, comparing the best high school athletes, male athletes, with the best female Olympic athletes. The only thing that the women ever came in first, second, or third in was the 5,000 meters. So they compared them at 100, 200, 400, 1,500, 5,000, long jump, triple jump, high jump, a few others. And the best high school males beat the best Olympic females every time except in the 5,000 meters. So I think that just says something about the endurance of women. And I would say that's a complimentary feature because I'll make a sexist remark. They have to put up with so much, don't they? <laughs> yes. So, anyway. All right. Um, the second thing, that was just one thing. Um, uh, there is a fall from original uh, perfection and goodness. And by the way, one of the reasons America has worked so well for so long in, in my opinion, is that the Founding Fathers took into consideration that we are fallen and broken in our nature. That's why we have a divided government, three legislative branches. That's why power is never accumulated. And any attempt to get over that, uh, it, it just doesn't come out right. Um, the Romanticists, not all of them, but a great deal of them, and Rousseau and Nietzsche and Descartes was a good Catholic, um, and Freud and, and all of them uh, deny that man is inherently flawed from an original perfection. We just are the way we are because we are the way we are. That's it. The fall depicted in Genesis is a real event in history. Was there really a talking snake? Well, it doesn't say snake. It says serpent. Serpent obviously is meant to be symbolic of Satan. Doesn't mean there wasn't a talking snake. Don't misunderstand me. I'm saying if someone thinks it's still really Satan, you know, don't say they don't believe the Bible. Um, maybe talking snakes were a thing. I don't know. Uh, there are certainly symbolic elements and literary devices in the narrative, but Adam and Eve's disobedience 
really happened, a space-time event in history, and introduced sin not only into the human race, but as the Apostle Paul reflects on in Romans chapter 8.20, the whole creation was subjected to frustration. What does that mean? This means that neither we nor the whole cosmos can fulfill God's intended purposes. So frustration is, is a feature of living in a fallen world. Um, I almost feel like stopping and reflecting on that. I'll just say one thing. So Paul once said, yes, he said it somewhere, you know, having, clo- having food and shelter or food and clothing, we should be content with that. I think, I, I, I know it sounds almost cheesy and pious, but the key to contentment and to dealing with frustration is to really believe that God has your best interest at heart. I say that, and of course, I am as frustrated as everybody else. So, um, so in a multitude of ways, including death, disorder, disease, and decay, all creation currently suffers under the curse. In God's time, and, and once I gave the bad news, I have to give the good news. It's not really part of what we're doing, but in God's time, through God's being and to Christ's being and work, who he is as well as what he does, eventually humanity and creation will be redeemed from the curse. Presently, though, as we all know, things are not the way they are supposed to be, nor, thank God, are they the way they eventually will be. The fall must be taken into account if we want to understand ourselves and our world and our present brokenness. That's what we are. And the last thing what we are, though, again with redemption, is, uh, no, this isn't redemption. That comes up in a couple of slides. A union of body and mind, spirit and soul. So in Genesis 2-7, uh, it's, it, it, it's, we have... Uh, God forming man from the dust and breathing him to breath of life, and he became one living being. Uh, not, not, not simply a dichotomous or uh, completely separate, but what almost like a hypostatic union, which is usually referred to when you're talking about the divine and human natures of Christ. But we were intended to be unified mind and body, or spirit and body and soul and body. Uh, this is, this is I, I'm reluctant to call it dualism, but this, this is kind of the biblical dualism. It's, there's no triism. Mind, spirit, and soul are not always exactly the same thing. There are subtle nuances of meaning, but there is a non-physical part of us as well as a physical part of us, and they are in union. Death ends that. Um, I'm, I'm not even sure how frequent it is anymore. I haven't been to an open casket viewing in such a long time, but I went to my grandfather's and the most profound, this is 40-some years ago, the most profound sense I had was there's nobody there. This is literally just his remains, um, which is probably where the phrase came from. So death is the separation of something which was never intended to be separated. Um, in Matthew 10.28, uh, Jesus distinguishes between body and soul. He says, do not fear those who can, who can kill the body only. Fear him who can destroy body and soul 
in hell. So he's comparing Satan and God. God can't destroy, I mean, Satan can't destroy your soul. Um, by the way, I don't think this implies annihilationism, but we can talk about that later if you want to. Uh, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul urges us to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice and have our mind transformed. So we are meant to be a whole person and everything we are, including our bodies and minds, is something we are to give to God. In 2 Corinthians 7, 1, he, he, uh, Paul exhorts us to avoid anything that, quote, contaminates body and spirit. Well, quote, as the NIV translates it. Um, so, that, I really believe that means you shouldn't eat Cheetos. Okay. Um, or caffeinated root beer, apparently. Yeah. Um, any questions so far? I do want to finish. You said we were going to try to go 75 minutes the first well, time. Well, that includes splitting the youth off. Okay. So let me wrap this up real quick. Um, so this is a repeat of what Klein Snodgrass said. How is my identity shaped and formed? Um, it's not just him, but I am gleaning from his book and the other books. These identity markers... Um, which are in some respects legitimate ways of understanding our identity. There is your biology and psychology, your sex. Um, I'm a male. I believe I'll be male in the kingdom of heaven, whatever redeemed maleness looks like. I'm not quite sure. I do know that in heaven we are neither married nor given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. That could mean a lot of things. Uh, physical attributes and abilities, mental capacities and abilities. I have, you know, I make fun of myself, but uh, I used to be a pretty good softball player, but I have never identified as a basketball player. Okay. <laughs> uh, oh, I wrestled too in prep school uh, because they have weight classes, so you can. Family of origin. Um, I, we all know sometimes our family of origin can be a good thing, sometimes a difficult thing, but it affects us anyway. Uh, race, ethnicity, nationality, and color. Now, uh, culture. Now, this is where the idea of uh, critical race theory comes in sometimes with race. If you're white, you're bad these days uh, in some circles. But it does influence us. Uh, our race does uh, have something to do with identity. Uh, religion. And I don't necessarily, we'll talk about what it means to be in Christ and how that changes our identity, but just Muslim, Hindu, uh, nothing. Uh, local community. Um, I was raised in a small town 20 miles from the ocean. I never got over it. Um, seriously, don't you think that's true? Where's my wife? What, I'm sorry. <laughs> Were you not paying attention, young lady? I, I wasn't because I'm Elizabeth. <laughs> I said I was raised in a small town. My daughter was taking my granddaughter to the ER. So I was I raised in a small town 20 miles from the ocean, and I never got over it. You, th that you think that's true, isn't it? Yes. Anyway. <laughs> Personal relationships. Um, and I mean all of them. Friends. Uh, Lovers, personal history, uh, we are who we are because we did what we did. Um, 
And then finally, personal character, commitments, and personality. Now, I think some of these, you may disagree, but I think these are means by which God can form our identity in the way he wants to. But none of them are ultimate, okay? And I think it, they're means in a similar way, but of course not in an eternal or ultimate way as the gospel and word and sacrament is a way of forming our identity. Um, one of the reasons, I believe anyway, that the gospel needs to be preached is to form our identity. Of course, the first formation of that identity is repent and believe the good news. Uh, and again, the crucial difference is that the, gulf, the gospel is eternal and ultimate, while the traditional worldly identity markers are not. If you had a terrible family of origin or the greatest family of origin ever, uh, neither nature nor nurture is destiny. Um, the gospel is destiny. I've known people who have, have overcome both really good uh, uh, upbringings to become the thoroughly awful people, and I've known uh, people who had thoroughly awful upbringings and have overcome them to become thoroughly good people. Um, and the rest were these two. But doesn't mean they aren't real, and it doesn't mean God can't use them. God uses anything. As I pointed out to somebody on Facebook once, God used a talking donkey. Can he use men? Okay. Anyway, I am who God says I am. Uh, this is the title of uh, Rosner's book. Um, so again, I've, I'm not going to take the time to read all these uh, scripture, but I will become like what I worship. So uh, Psalms and the Isaiah passage tell us that those who worship idols will become like them. Not speaking, not hearing, not moving, not thinking, not feeling spiritually lifeless. The passages from Ephesians... And Philippians uh, tell us that we will become like the Lord and Savior. We worship Jesus Christ, which is summed up well in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Whoops. Um, hit the wrong button. Anyway, I am known by God. Um, let's see. I think I make a comment on Galatians 4, 8, and 9. Uh, it emphasizes that redemption, and these are people who need to know what salvation was all about. It wasn't about following the law. It emphasizes that redemption is being known by God. He said, now that you know God, or rather are known by God. Now, being known by God doesn't simply mean he's aware of your existence. He's aware of everybody's existence. It's like being known as a parent knows their child. It means that we are chosen by God and belong to him. Uh, the passage is from John. Um, let's see. I keep hitting that button. Uh, John 1, 12, uh, 1 John, 1 John 3, 2. Um, John emphasizes that being known by God means that we are children of God. He said, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. 
And he, he iterates and then reiterates in John 1, 2 and the one I just read, First uh, John 3, 2, that uh, who we are in Christ are God's children and that is our primary identity. So God knows us. He knows our identity better than we know ourselves. Uh, and those last verses, Isaiah, Colossians, and Revelation, tell us that the fullness of who we are is formed by God and revealed in the coming of his kingdom in fullness.